Welcome to the Business of Property podcast. I'm Stuart. I'm Simon. And I'm Tom So. And we're all property people running our own businesses. And this podcast is just us chatting, as we often do, about anything and everything property. And once again, those eagle-eared of you will notice that we had a third name, Tom Soane. So just like to say welcome to the show, Tom. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, mate. You're very welcome. Rather than us do your intro, do you want to just give a quick overview around yourself and what you're currently focused on, and then we'll, and we'll have a chat? Yeah, uh, well, my name's Tom Soane. Um, predominantly, I'm a business owner and property investor and podcaster myself, and um, over the last few years, I've been investing property myself. Before that, I launched my own letting agent and estate agent. Um, before that, I was an estate agent, a letting agent, and a mortgage advisor. And so now I do pretty much everything to do with property, and I now get people asking me to be their mentor, which is really weird. <laughs> and I did note that you'd been an estate agent, stroke letting agent for about 10 years. Is that, is that about right? I've owned my own letting agent and estate agent for about 10 years, but I've been, I started in estate agency uh, when I was about, when I was 19, so about 21 years ago. I've just given away my age, haven't I? <laughs> well, you're, you're still young compared to me, Tom, so you're, you're all right there. So tell us just a little bit about jumping the fence from becoming an estate agent to letting agent to then becoming a property investor. So you've been poacher turned gamekeeper or, or the other way around yeah do you know it was an interest it was the natural journey really wasn't it and so starting out i cut my teeth in an estate agent when i was 19 and i i learned from a guy who i now realized at that time was my mentor um absolute phenomenon of a bloke matthew drain if you ever listen to this matt then yeah i've told him before um, and then I went through estate agency. I left agency and became a mortgage advisor. So I saw things from a different perspective. And then I went back into uh, estate agency in a corporate world, but felt like I could do it better. Like all entrepreneurs do, don't they? They think, oh, that's rubbish. I could do this much better. So <laughs> I did. I launched my own estate agent. And here's a funny little story. When I launched my estate agent, if I'd have gone after funding and investment maybe from the city then i would have been the first ever hybrid estate agent because that's what i built where it was all it was no shop front it was all exploiting the online world and technologies and having field-based agents and i would have been the first but as as it happens i didn't have the savvy at that time to do it so purple bricks and all of those companies came along and did something similar and got millions. <laughs> um, but then, yes, yeah, so I went on that journey of launching my own estate agent and letting agent, and that grew very slowly. Um, as a business owner, I hit rock bottom, almost went bankrupt, and had some absolutely horrific experiences where quite a few times I wanted to quit and stop. Um, but then something inside just went, nah, you know what? You can make this work. You always said that you could do this better. So do it better, Tom. So I did. And now my business is going really well. And I started property investing for myself. Because funnily enough, over the last 10 years or whatever it is, I've, I've invested for investors. So I've taken their funds and invested it for them into property, whether it be flips, buy to let, buy refurbished finance, all of those different types of things. And 
after doing that for a number of years, I thought, hey, I think I need to do this for myself, seeing all these people making loads of money. So I was in the right business. So I decided I was going to do it for myself. And then, so yeah, I started property investing on my own. And the first place I bought was a big three bedroom house in South Sea, which was, uh, it made a decent profit. And, and it was a nice big learning project too. And then I haven't stopped. Uh, am I right in thinking that that first investment you made was a was a flip project? It was, yeah, big flip as well. And and I had it was a, it was a bit of a, a joint venture, and I learned a, a lot about the refurbishment element because when you're doing it for clients, then you see everything more logically and strategically. You're setting out a plan for the refurbishment. You're your, your your target goals and objectives are very much um, non-subjective, if you like, non-emotional, because um, your target is just to make profit for that customer so he comes back or she comes back and buys again. But now you're doing it for yourself. Now all of a sudden all your fear kicks in. And when I first did it, I was looking for investment properties for six months at least. Um, and I was viewing... Pfft, five or six properties a week and all of them would have been great investments, but I was so scared of actually jumping in and investing because I thought this one, even though I've bought hundreds of properties, successful properties for investors, this was going to be the one that was going to go horribly wrong and I was going to lose everything and the tenants were going to catch fire and sue me or not pay rent or the house is going to fall down. This was going to be that one property in the history of the world that was going to do it. So um, so I was literally terrified of doing it. And actually, the one that, that, that switched me into a different mindset, because bear in mind, all this time I'm walking into properties and I'm finding something. I'm going to find something that's wrong with this place because it's my, my livelihood I'm investing in now. And I went and saw this place in Lyndhurst Road in Portsmouth, um, very working class, terrace property, three bedroom place. And it ticked all my boxes. It was perfect. And a great profit would have been a really good deal. Straight out flip. And as I was walking around it, I was thinking, I can't find anything wrong with this. And I left the property thinking, right, I've got to make an offer. But I didn't. I didn't make an offer. Um, I even knew the figure that I would offer. But I didn't make an offer because I thought, oh, it's too good to be true. Too good to be true. And I was just scared that I wasn't going to make the right investment. And then from that property, I know the person that bought that property and they made 40 grand profit on it. And it really irritated me. And I said, I saw what I was doing and I realized, OK, Tom, you're going to have to you're going to have to just go for the next property that ticks your boxes. You're going to have to jump in, take a risk and go for it. Yeah. Give yourself a slap in the face and deal with it. It was exactly yeah. a slap in the face. And do you know, actually, what was quite interesting about that little jump was you still have the fear, don't you? You still are terrified of losing your money and, and getting everything wrong and all of that. But now something's switched in here. And I, I was able to then think back and think, OK, enough's enough. I've done this hundreds of times and people have made so much money out of me. So I said to myself, the next one that ticks the boxes I do quite a, I guess, quite an educated amount of due diligence. And then as soon as that, those boxes were ticked, I put the offer in and then sat in the corner just terrified, thinking, oh, I hope I don't get this wrong. 
What I find interesting though is, is I'm I'm kind of the other way around in that if I'm working with investor money, which which I, which I still do fairly frequently, is I'm I'm probably more fearful. So, but it's interesting the point you make around all of the due diligence and thinking unemotively because I think that's absolutely right for me. Is but when I'm buying for myself, if my gut says yes, I'm gonna like okay, I'm in, I'm in for this, and then I'll and then I'll go and do numbers. But there's less fear for me on my own because I think actually if 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 we do hit the downside, I have to stomach it versus if I'm dealing with a lot of JV money and they're then asking me where that money is or where their interest is, that I've got a greater fear about refunding that. And it's quite interesting because we're looking at projects at the moment, which I can't share the details of because I'm still deciding whether or not we're going to put an offer in. But it's uh, let's just say it's a commercial building but a good price and I'm just waiting for I took I, I get so fearful of it actually we took uh, we took the builder plumber sparky because I want I almost want and I'm like can you get me some costs in 48 hours and they've all looked at me because we're talking like six figures plus and I just but I get that fearful when JV money so it's quite it's quite interesting that you feel greater fear when it's when it's your cash but again I, I think I understand that it's it's purely the strategy of it, isn't it? You've you again, you've hit the nail on the head there. You, it's the same thing, maybe, but just in on the different perspective. Because I, I like I say, same as you, I buy properties for investors, and I'm able to just follow a process of mathematical calculations, um, some questions that I answer to. If they're positive answers, then that's a, t- a box ticked, and if they're negative answers, then that's a box unticked. You know, and then. Every single one of those boxes, so to speak, have got a a mathematical value to them. And for me, whenever I'm investing with somebody else's money, I can very easily calculate the risk. I can calculate what the offer needs to be, what the return on investments need to be, what the yield is, and so on and so on and so on. But when it's for me, I start bringing all the emotion, or not so much now. Now I've been doing it a bit. Now I'm a bit better with it. But when it was for me at the beginning... All of the fears were coming in. And actually, do you know what my biggest fear was? Is getting it wrong and people thinking, oh, he's an idiot. Look at him. What a, what a terrible property investor. Even though I knew I'm, I'm a brilliant property investor. I knew that. But my fear was telling me, oh, you're going to get this wrong. And, you know. But that's, that's, that's the mindset, isn't it? Because my experience is, and I've made a huge, you know, a few, if I had a bleep button, I'd bleep myself now. But I've made, it, made a huge uh mistakes even i would say within the last two years well within the last year of a purchase actually it's i think i'm only going to about break even on a on a flip we're doing and in my head i want to class that as a mistake but it's been a huge huge learning but the the thing i just want to pull out that you talked about there i think which was important for me is you, you talked about under understanding the risk and i think for anyone that's doing this that is the point because the project we're looking at with the and i've got a business partner in in this one and he's really tentative because he because we don't fully know why this property has come back on the market and there's a number of reasons now we've done the due diligence that we can to understand that and we've got a sense of it but then for me just like you said it comes back to the numbers and i said i sort of said to him look let's just let's do the numbers and then if the numbers work for us we've uncovered what we think we can uncover through whatever you know surveys legal process then we're going in eyes wide open so regardless of what's gone on before as long as we can handle the risk the downside 
then we can move forward. And I think that's kind of what you're talking about there, isn't it? Spot on. Um, do you know, because I, I, I now try and try and apply a figure to everything. So including the emotional, no, not emotional, but the human element. I think you can calculate mathematically as well as the numbers and the bricks and mortar and the finance element and the fees. Um, so I try if I if I'm coming up against a property that has an element of doubt in it, then I calculate it based on um, based on the the human element. So I'll give you an example. Let's say, for an example, we're not sure about we're not 100 percent certain about the, the, the GDV, the gross development value, or the, the job done value, I call it. Um, yeah. We're not 100 percent sure at that you take your best and worst and then I'll allow an element of contingency. And that just changes my offer. It doesn't change the, the property job, doesn't change the refurbishment required. It doesn't change anything like that. All it does is changes what my offer needs to be in order to pick up this property and, and mitigate my own risk. Um, and it's the, same with, it's the same when you're buying for other people as well. If there is any element of uncertainty, I go back to, I, I look, I look, for example, I look at the odds. What are the odds of this happening? Um, what are the chances that, there are gonna, that you're going to get that a 200 grand value and what are the chances you're going to get the 190 grand value so yeah and i always try and, and apply an element of mathematics to every single part of it but then i think it comes down to your own experience as well doesn't it? you have to apply your own knowledge and experience to those mm. deals too yeah so simon where, where do you sit on this spectrum do you think um in terms of applying maths versus feelings versus risk um tolerance levels I, i'm definitely at the maths end i mean ha having created my own software product to help me calculate all the, uh, the the financial elements of it and and provide financial forecasts and comparisons between different properties i'm considering and things i don't think i could claim anything else really could i <laughs> <No>. <laughs> right answer <laughs> um i'm curious tom your your first investment was, you, you said, sort of tied up in your, your emotions and things and, and getting going with that. Does that mean you, were, you ended up being sort of very hands-on? Were you, were you turning up every day to check on the builders? And what, what was your sort of level of involvement after you, you'd signed on that dotted line? Funnily enough, no. Um, it was the signing of the dotted line, the commitment of it, that I was most fearful about. Because I knew, because I've got a letting agent and um, the builder that w does all of the construction work for my letting agent my estate agent has done for many of my clients before is an excellent builder and you've got to have those relationships haven't you they're vital i'm really disappointed because i've really had a vision now tom with a register <laughs> just checking in the tradesmen as they come through yeah sparky <laughs> yeah in nine o'clock <laughs> yeah i was on them every day of the week i was really hammering no um but yeah, it's a weird one, really, because I knew the job was going to be a good job. I knew that the builder was there and prepared with contingencies. I'm a big believer in contingencies. And I knew that we'd really analysed the refurbishment job and what fixtures and fittings and furnishings needed were needed, what sort of, yeah, everything. And I think we analysed the cost very well, because again, I've done that hundreds of times. It was more the the buying of the property, and now I'm committing myself to this property. Actually, I'll tell you how I got over it as well, uh, which is quite interesting, and I still apply this logic now. I, was I understood, I, I accepted that I'm fearful of something, and it was taking that first step, right? And it was 
there was a fear element there. And I tried to understand what that fear was and where it was coming from. And so I realized that I was scared that property prices were going to drop and or the refurb was going to go horribly wrong and something was going to fall down and cost more money or it wouldn't sell and stuff like that. So it was all losing money. It was an all a losing money mentality. So I went back to data. And as Simon says, you know, the mathematics is the key. And I, I love maths. I love the numbers element. I love the creativity of the numbers in property. So I went back to that. And I looked back. And the last time that um, property prices dropped by anything dramatic that was going to lose me all my money was never. So I realized, ah, do you know what? I'm just being silly here, aren't I? Because actually, worst case scenario is property prices drop by 20%. I mean, when's that ever happened? Really, in, in the Southeast, when has that really ever happened outside of London? So I, th- I looked at it like that and thought, okay, the chances are that's not going to happen. And if it does drop by 20%, I'll still make about I'll still make about five or six percent on my on my money, and I'll just walk away and go, okay, learn a lesson there next. So, yeah, I went back to maths, and the maths solved the problem for me. It's hard to do that though. If you're if you're just an investor investing for your first time, it's very hard to just go, okay, maths is all I need to worry about. I think you, you mentioned there in the southeast, a drop of twenty percent seems pretty unlikely. But I think I'm right in saying you're currently investing up north, aren't you, in your, your current projects? Yes. So how, how do you feel about the risks of, of a big drop up there? Is that something you're, you're considering differently for that region? Um, do you know what? For my own ego, I, I like to think that I'm being really clever up there. Um, <laughs> uh, I've got a few little factors to it. So I am investing up and around the Newcastle area. Um, I've got four properties going through legals right now. Um, I'm not buying in the slums, so to speak, but I'm buying in areas of current development. Now, I know that there are a few very significant developers that are building up there at the moment quite heavily. And I know of a few pretty significant developments that are coming over the next two or three years. Um, So I've tried to buy these places in areas that either have a good demand currently and and or have a good sales market currently but also there's a there's two of those properties that are in a real high development area right this second um, so one of them i'm buying up there is, a, is i'm going to turn into a hmo in two years time uh, because they're, they're building a gigantic hospital in the road that i'm buying on so i'm going to turn that one into a hmo what why newcastle what's what's taking you your interest up to there uh, development up that way the northeast is getting quite a lot of development. I know of a few of the big major developers are investing heavily up there. You got a couple of other areas I've got my eye on too, but I've got a really good team up in Newcastle as well. So I've I've immersed myself with a couple of guys up there who are sourcers. One of them's a surveyor. He's got his own agencies, um, and also I've got contractors up there now. So I have a good contractor team. Um, so really, for me, it was, look, it's just a flip. I'm not doing any, uh, apart from the HMO, which I know is going to be a good longer term one, the others are just flips to build cash flow. 
and we're getting them at such a good rate, I can tolerate something in the region of about a 20% drop in price, and I'll still make 20% of my money. Some phenomenal profits to be had up there. How did you get to uh, form your team and know these people so far away from where you're actually based? I know. Uh, do you know, I, I made a friend at a training course for letting agents, funnily enough, and he went along with his team and we just got chat. We hit it off. You know, we went out and got drunk and as you do. And we... Well, not anymore these days. <laughs> no, I know. I know. Two kids. No, no, no. Um, yeah. And we just hit it off. We just started chatting. And he said, yeah, I source properties. And I said, oh, do you? Well, I'm buying properties. And he, and we were talking about his area. And then I just went up to Newcastle to have a look around and visit. Spent a couple of days up there with him. And he was showing me some of the areas and talking to me about some of the developers that are operating up there. And I knew of some of them. Um, showed me some of the developments that are currently going on. Showed me some of the plans that are currently in. And I just got all excited about it. And uh I thought, hey, there's there's some good money to be had up here. He also showed me a couple of the projects he's doing. And on our first deal up there, he we did a joint venture. So it said to me that, you know, he's confident in it. He knows it inside and out. He's probably one of the top names around there anyway for property. Tony Fairs, by the way, if anybody's interested. You should get him on here, actually. He's a really good chat. Um, but, yeah, certainly – Started chatting with him and then I went up there more and more and then I started immersing and networking with more property people up there and contractors and so on. And they just, I say built a team. I don't have a formal contract in place with a team of people. I just now have a good team of contacts and, and fallbacks up there. So, yeah, I found one property. We did that. That one's looking good. We've got, and I've got, like I said, I've got four going through legals. So it's, it's just... Look, obviously, there's a risk, right? And I've tried to calculate based on historic data. And I look back over um, price increase, decrease, demand increase, decrease over over a period of time, historically. Um, you, you know, you can get the data from places, land registry data, right move data, everywhere. Pat, as well, quick plug for my own software. I provide um, yes, I provide price history in, in an area when you're searching on properties and things as well. So. There you go. <laughs> Couldn't let that go without mentioning. <laughs> Other software providers are available, but we don't talk no, about them. No, they're not. No. But, but, we don't talk, but we don't talk about them on this show. They're no good, though, are they, Simon? <laughs> no, they're rubbish. They're absolutely rubbish. But the thing is, that's a good point, though, Simon, is because data now helps you identify growth areas for a start. Now, I always did it the old-fashioned way. So, you know, using more, more modern technologies is fantastic. But you can monitor high demand. You can monitor um, low demand. Which, But you can also see where there's an area of low demand. Is it going to jump back up again in the future? Um, you can see price increase, price decrease, growth spots, development areas. You know, it's all, all the data is there somewhere. just needs to be interpreted. And I think the the other point that Simon and I talk about quite frequently on this show is other than flips, which obviously you have a very specific objective in terms of time frame and, and money, but generally property, we should be thinking about that in the longer term anyway. So even if there are those drops, and as you say, historically, they're not going to be as big as, I mean, even now looking at some of the data that if the fallout comes post COVID, post furlough, everything else post stamp duty holiday I, I was reading the stats they were saying that on average they think the drop could be and of course no one knows but something like 3.4 percent and you know the headlines would be armageddon but and i think well okay four percent we'll stomach that 
we'll, we'll still be able to go to the shops and buy our food, you know. But obviously flips slightly different. But even if, if you get a, a 10% drop, if you're thinking about a long-term strategy and you're holding, then even then the concern wouldn't be as great if, no. if, if the market crashes. Absolutely. And if you've if you've got the right strategy in place, then you'll probably recover recover that four percent drop over two years anyway, wouldn't you? You'd hope so. And even if it's ten years, you're not thinking that if you've got a property that you that's got good cash flow coming in, the rent prices aren't going to change. So you can you can be pretty sure that your cash flow is coming in, you keep it, you're not going to sell it in the next couple of years if it's got good cash flow and it's got good yield. So, yeah. so, hey, you know, I think, though, you're absolutely right. Is The, the headline would be Armageddon, 4% drop. You know, it might say 4% in the southeast, which means 20% in the northeast, and, and there's your headline. They would never say 4% property price drop. They'll say 20%. Yeah. Brad, <laughs> but we all know, you yeah. and I all know that, no, actually, it's probably going to be more like 4%, and that will only be temporary. And all that changes, you know, I always tell anybody, any property investor I ever speak to, I always try and tell them that, you know, the circumstances don't change. Your The numbers don't change. The only thing that ever changes is your offer. And that's it. If property prices drop by 4%, then your offer drops by 4%. If if your yield drops by 4%, your offer drops by 4%. It's as simple as that. And I think it brings us back around, actually, full circle to where you kicked off about doing the due, doing the due diligence and and being fearful in a positive way because my only example is I did buy back end of 2007 this was personal not investment but we bought in two, back end of 2007 we invested about 30k and this is in the south southeast just outside of london in surrey we invested about 30,000 and then in my personal situation was we had a baby just had a baby and then found out we were having twins realized we had to move very very rapidly and um, so I had to sell, had to sell within a year. Of course, the market crashed 2008 and we sold it for exactly the same price we bought it for, having spent 30 grand on it. And that was the price differential. So I learned very early on that exactly what you're saying is actually we can try and fa- we can't factor in crashes, but we know that there's an uncertain market. However, if you go in with eyes wide open and you're comfortable with holding on to a property and you're not looking to sell it in the next 12 months, you're, you're going to be OK in the long term yeah i agree and it's tough to compare as well as you know uh investment from personal isn't it because you oh yeah you spent 30 grand if that was an investment property you probably wouldn't have spent 30 grand well let's let's be honest it was my wife that spent 30 grand <laughs> not me so, so you're absolutely right yeah and and no, i'm not saying you wouldn't spend any money but you probably have yeah. spent in order for your own comfort and, and life style but, you know, in that exact instance, it also comes down to timing that you've spent 30 grand and the property prices you haven't. If you're an invest, if that was an investment property, you would probably be looking for the best time to make your your yield on that property investment. Right. A hundred percent. Yeah. But you you chose to that you were selling that time because it's your home and you had to move into another home. So therefore. You couldn't control that timing and you couldn't, you know, it wasn't an investment. So you're not looking right. Okay, we can't move until three years because that's when I get my 15 percent yield. (laughs) Exactly. Absolutely right. (laughs) (laughs) If it's an investment property, you're much less likely to have the have twins suddenly turn up forcing you to to sell so and if it is it's probably twin brothers that are yeah yeah actually let's not not go there um (laughs) But no, you're absolutely uh, yeah, right. We, if, we don't need to dig into your uh, your JVs <laughs> at the moment and, and who you're investing with. Us. 
Yeah, if it were investment, we'd have, we'd have spent fifty percent less. I can guarantee you that we'd it, you know, we'd have spent fifty percent less than 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 the whatever Roman Italian tiles my wife wanted at the time. <laughs> yeah, and then you probably would have hung on for another year or two when the market bounces back and rented it out, and you know, there's loads of different ways. But yeah, and and people always say that to me, you know, when 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 I used to do estate agency and I used to go out valuing people's properties. And they say, and I give them a value, right, your property's worth 200000 And they say, oh, well, we spent, we bought it for 190 and we spent twenty five on it since. You can't really, okay, great. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Yes. But, you know, if someone wants to buy your place, that's what they're going to pay for it. The market decides. And it's as simple as that, isn't it? The market will tell you. We had that conversation this morning because we are looking at properties again. And someone said, do you think my property is overvalued? And I said, well, how long has it been on the market? And they said, well, it's about a year and a half. And I said, well, I think you've got your answer because no one's bought it. So, <laughs> I mean, sorry to be black and white, but that's, you know, if it were the right price, you'd have sold it. There's a really funny misconception in the, I guess, in the estate agency world from the customers in the, first of all, on the buying side, everyone thinks that the estate agent sets the price and they decide the price and they blame the estate agent for putting on the market too, too high in price was very rare because an estate agent only gets paid when they sell a property, right? So therefore, you can guarantee nine times out of 10, actually, that the estate agent did not decide that high price. They probably went in and valued it correctly, but the owner said, no, I want to go on the market at 200000 And then it doesn't sell. And the most estate agents in the country have a day a week dedicated to price reductions. Because if a property's not sold, you have to bring the price down. It's as simple as that. But then on the on the seller's side, they all think that if the agent puts it on for a lower price, so in that same example, if the property's on the market for two hundred thousand, but it's really only worth one hundred and eighty, that if they put it on for on for a lower price, they're going to lose money. But I kept on trying to tell people, you, know, you don't have to accept an offer. If we put it on for one hundred eighty thousand, then we're just trying to get people through your door, you know, to try and view it and then they can make offers. But yeah, there's a big misconception that agents set the price and decide the price, but um, but also that sellers will lose money if they advertise their property for any less. It's really interesting, isn't it? And I'm, I'm already hearing like three or four different topics for podcast episodes, yeah. which I'm which I'm going to note down. But the, the final thing I'll say on that is it's really interesting because I had this conversation the other day and one of my views on that because it's, it's just strange that so for when i'm putting a property on the market my conversation is always very hopefully transparent with the estate and i say look i just want to price this to sell it of course given what i do i'm going to have an idea in my head of what i think it's valued at but i always say don't give me the top heavy view just give me the view that you think it's actually worth because that's that's where i want to market it but i'm just interested in your viewpoint given your background I was talking the other day, you know, there's a big penchant now for people putting bands on. So we've now got this valued guide price 200 to 220 or two. My perspective was, I think that there's just this disparity between what the vendor actually wants and what the estate agent wants. So they so they put it on for that price because you, you almost get the best of both worlds because you can guide it at the low price where the vendor's expecting a high price. What's, what's your view on that, if that makes sense? 
Um, it's all a bit of a gimmick, if I'm honest with you. Uh, so if you if you see a property on Rightmove, for an example, that's just uh, asking price 199995 or 950 or whatever, then that is the price. Maybe the agent's gone in and valued the property at 190, 195, and then they've put it on at a nice nice figure to capture all of the market underneath the 200,000 pounds limit because you know when you go on right move you can search up to a certain price yeah so if you go on the market at two hundred thousand and one penny then nobody searching up to two hundred thousand will find your property so that's the first bit and then when a property hasn't sold for a period of time then the gimmick is to try and get a different number up there and so the agent will will try and say things like offers over uh 190,000 or offers an excess of or guide price, something like that, just purely so that they can get that property seen by another category of searchers. Simple. Yeah, so it is a bit gimmicky. So when you see an agent that's an estate agent that's advertised that offers over something or offers an excess of or offers in the region of, then it's just purely to try and capture a different set of eyes on that property. But then when you get things like guide price, now this one's getting a bit complex now because where you've got so many online auctions as well as, uh, I guess, modern auctions as well as the traditional auctions, you'll get companies that are traditional auctioneers, they'll advertise a guide price because they have to. But the modern auctions or the online auctions like I Am Sold or Pattinson's and companies like that, they'll advertise guide price because they are auctioning the property, but the agent that has given the auctioneer that property also advertises it as guide price because they have to. Can't have it advertised, the same property advertised at two different prices. So always historically, guide price was auction, right? That's what guide, That's what an auction is. So it's now become a bit misleading, I do think. However, I would say that probably is affecting standard residential purchases the most. But I think if you are a, a property investor, then... Yeah, you know, you've got to search in a certain way. You have to search properties up to 200 grand, but then go back to find that property that you like the look of and you think it's a good rental area, strong demand for that area, and make your calculations in advance to calculate your true yield on a property, not fake yield. I really, really um, get worried for people that calculate some the the old-fashioned or weird way of calculating yield. Simon will probably agree with me on this. I'll tell you in a minute. But anyway, calculate your true yield, calculate your due diligence, work it out, and then go and book a viewing. And your offer will be based on your own calculations, not offers in excess of or offers in the region of or guide price. Your offer is your offer. Yeah. And you know what? Funny enough, I did. Um, I've just I've just recorded a video about how to make offers through estate agents because I realized that I'm on both sides of the fence and I could probably advise people on how to make their offers through estate agents because estate agents don't work for the buyers. So how to get an estate agent to really fight your corner as a buyer when you're not actually paying them a penny. So it's a trick, but I've just recorded that actually. And it's a lot of stuff like sharing your workings and how you work with the agents and stuff like that. It's all, it's all a science. Yeah. And a lot of it fairly common sense from my perspective is that if you want to work with someone, you want someone to to be on your side and support you, you you've got to be transparent. You've got to sh- share your workings to the highest degree that you can. 
But the, the final thing I was going to say, because I know quite rightly we've, we've kind of gone over time because this has been a great conversation and ho- hopefully we'll get you back soon, is that, that that guide price that you're talking about, and you've, you've, you've said it affects sort of residential purchases as well. That's what I think because you, you put something up for, let's just say, 200 to 220. As a purchaser, you're not looking at 220, you're looking at 200. So I always feel like you've you've already anchored the low point. And estate agents that we speak with, they always go, well, it's a range and it's going to be in that range. And I said, well, but if you've got a range, if it's 200 to 220, my head's saying 200. So that for me is where, you know, and you've articulated it really well, how that comes about. But it's exactly what we were thinking is that, yeah, you've got two different points there, but already you've anchored in someone's mind the lower end. So from a vendor perspective, I don't see how that really works. Yeah. Do you know, you're trying to get them through the door and if you have got a property that is really worth 220 you would normally advertise at 220 but you put in there this guide at 200 to 220 you're probably going to get a lot of interest of people that want to come round so for a state agent that's job number 1 ticked isn't it get people through the door because if you don't if you don't book any viewings you can't get any offers if you can't get any offers you can't get any sales so get them through the door first of all on the like you say, they're subconsciously thinking 200,000, not 220. So you get them through the door and from there you get offers on the table. And if you've got a lot of people interested in that property and they start making offers, then you can start encouraging some sort of bidding war. Uh, like it or not, that's that's life, isn't it? We're going to go and have a bidding war. And then you might get someone that offers 200. So you would go in and offer 200. I might say, all right, I'll have 205 and then 26, 27, 28. And it will probably get up to 210, 212. And that's probably what it's worth. Mm. But they've got you in the door in the first place, which is, you know what, like, like them or hate them, estate agents don't get paid until the job is done. So their sole focus is get people through the door, get that place sold. And it will sell for what it's worth. It's you can't deny that. Nobody can. So yeah, and it's it's interesting as well that I mean I don't like it. I love a good old fashioned asking price, make me offers. But hey, sometimes you've got to get creative, huh? <laughs> Absolutely, and I and I think you're right. Ultimately, the estate agent's job is to sell the property, and the thing is, I, I don't think you can have it both ways. We couldn't sit here and complain around about them doing that because tomorrow, when we've got to put a property on the market and we need to sell it. We'll do whatever we can to get that property sold. So, yeah, I, I, I don't, um, you know, it's, it's just good talking it through with you so we we can get a good understanding of it. But I think from my perspective, I think you do what you can as long as it's obviously ethical and legal. Yeah, exactly right. And look, there are some agents in the, in the country that let the rest of us down. But, you know, on the whole, agents are just there to sell a property. They're not there to get involved in in anything else other than sell a property, earn their fee, move on. They're just people like you and me, aren't they? Exactly right. (laughs) (laughs) I could do with another hour or so to to continue this discussion, I think. But (laughs) unfortunately, we we have run over our our normal upper, upper limit. So I think uh, we are going to have to finish it here. So, Tom, if people want to get in touch with you, um, where can they do that? Best place is probably through my Facebook page. I would have thought it's just Tom Sohn or Tom Pink Street, I think, is my Facebook handle or username. But, yeah, that's probably the best place where everyone contacts me. Uh, Outside of that, I can take an email as well, which is tom at pinkstreet.co.uk. Pink Street, by the way, is one of my letting agents. 
Thanks for clearing it up. <laughs> we'll include your your links and uh, contact details and things on the on the show notes as well. Cool. Seeing as you did the, the intro, Stuart, do you want to do the, the final little outro bit to, to finish us up for this week? Yeah, well, firstly, I just want to say big thank you to Tom. Thanks for joining us, Tom. It's been really good. And there's lots more that I think both Simon and I would like to delve into if you'd be willing to join us again. Oh, I'd love to. Yeah, I love it. And as you can tell, I do waffle on a bit, so I'm always happy to give a waffle. <laughs> Awfully versatile as well he is. And for everyone else, I uh, hope you've enjoyed the show. As always, if you haven't yet, please do leave a rating or review. It really just helps us spread the message. And as Simon's already pointed out, the businessofproperty.com is where you'll find all of the show notes and all of the key points that we've talked about today. Other than that, we'll see you on the next episode. <laughs>